Hi everybody, Ken Krogh here. We are talking today with Dan Gray, Tom Harrison and I from Eternal Core. This is our podcast series. We're grateful to have Dan with us. He's one of the co-founders of the Lifestar Network. It's an amazing compulsive sexual addictions uh, protocol that's been used in 30 plus centers nationwide, I understand? Yes. So I'm just going to get these guys started. They're going to be over my head in a few minutes here. I'm going to let them get started. But this is going to be an ongoing series. We're going to bring in many of our speakers from the Eternal Core event that launches on March 29th and 30th at the Little America Hotel. You can go learn more about it at eternalcore.org. But Dan, why don't you tell us more about uh, some of your background, some of the history of how you got this started. Okay. Well, we've been doing our Lifestar program since about the mid-90s. Uh, at the time, I uh, partnered up with Todd Olson, my business partner, and we were running groups together, men's groups, and when we uh, combined our forces, we saw that we were dealing with a lot of individuals and families and couples that were struggling with compulsive sexual behaviors and addictions. So we uh, decided to join forces and develop a treatment protocol that we've been using for these many years now. And it was about the time that the internet hit, and so uh, we were kind of poised to bring on many, many clients that were struggling then with uh, compulsive sexual behaviors that were, were kind of directly so you, you, stimulated you got by it installed the installed just as the internet yeah. just drove it crazy, probably, yeah. huh? Yeah, yeah. Wow. And we've, we've had a lot of people that have come into our services and clinicians throughout the country that wanted to learn how to assess and treat these issues, especially on a group kind of a program. So we developed our workbook system and now we train therapists around the country. We wow. train therapists in Canada, also in Ukraine, Russia, and China as well in the assessment and treatment of these issues. Gotcha. Great. Everybody, this is Tom Harrison. He's been working with us here at Mobilize for a little over a year now. You retired from your private practice. He's been assisting Operation Underground Railroad with some of the the, the back office consulting to help with the aftercare. Some of these children who've been pulled out of human trafficking situations. Tim Ballard's been a close friend of ours. Tom actually has as an office there where he's assisted them. So there's a lot to talk about here with, with your background and, and with Tom's 41 plus years working with children, people struggling with these kinds of concerns. I'm going to turn the, the time to these two, and I'm going to sit back and just pop in a question now and again, if that's okay. Wonderful. <laughs> I've known Dan for decades and have a great respect for him and his work. Fine fellow. We're so pleased to have him as one of our main speakers at the Eternal Core Conference. And we just wanted you to get a little taste of him and an understanding of what you will be hearing or some of the things that you can look forward to in March of 2019. Dan, things have really evolved in this process since you and I began doing this yes, they have, Tom. Uh, decades ago. Would you like to just you know, speak to some of that experience that you've had and seen the evolution of sexual addiction and pornographic addiction and use? I, I know that that's kind of a controversial um, phrase, but uh, if you could just share a little of your information there. Sure, sure. Yeah, when you 
speak to the controversy that is around whether or not we call it addiction, whether mm -hmm. we call it compulsive sexual behaviors. Right, right. Uh, but, uh, you know, many, many years ago, as our growing up years, uh, during those times, we had access to pornographic material that was uh, not very accessible. You had to kind of seek it out or else come across it by accident at a friend's house or a field. I have clients that, uh, you know, they report on their original exposure to pornography and many times it was at uh, their friend's home or their, their father's, uh, their friend's father's stash of Playboys or else they could access it maybe in a grocery store or those yeah. kinds of things. Well, I remember in the 50s and 60s, my brother and I used to like to go down to the town dump and, and my brother allowed me to go with his friends for the first time. I don't know how old I was, maybe seven or eight. And I remember walking through the dump looking for treasures, and there was magazines everywhere. And I had never seen naked women like that. And I thought, my goodness, what are all these naked women doing at the dump, you know? And just, <laughs> just thinking, this is crazy. But I remember dating, you know, in the 60s, I'm telling you how old I am, but going to girlfriends' houses and on the coffee table would be a Hustler or Playboy or some of those just right out in the living room on the coffee table. And I remember, well, this is not my house. You know, we never had anything like that. But I remember how puzzling that was for me to think, wait a minute, you know, this is the coffee table. If I had anything like this, I... I'd probably have it inside of some secret place in my wall or something like that, or at least yeah. under my mattress in my bedroom. But right here, what is this? What's going on? So it's changed a lot since my teenage years dating in the 60s. Yeah, it has for me as well, Tom. We were raised in basically the same right. era, decades, right. and that uh, in my dating experience, and in junior high and high school, I had very little exposure to this type of material, right. uh, periodically like you had. Uh, but uh, as things have evolved, now pornography is so available that, in fact, it's one of the three A's that we say uh, are connected with, with sexual compulsive behavior and pornography addiction is accessibility, anonymity, and uh, affordability. And so the accessibility now has increased tremendously. Once the internet hit, then it infiltrated into not only the coffee table, which was right. probably an ir a relatively irregular experience for many families, especially in a religious community. Right. A lot of that material was uh, kept in the bedrooms mm -hmm. or not even in the home at all. But remember, I grew up in Southern California, so it was a little different. It was a little different there. A little. <laughs> not, not Springville, Utah. No, is what no, saying. no, it was not. It was not. Yeah, and so what we now have is youth that are being exposed at a very early age. In fact, some of the latest data is that most youth have first access and exposure to pornography around 9 to 11 years of age. That's their first exposure. Now that doesn't mean that they become addicts by any means, right. but they, with that first exposure, some see it and go, oh, this is, this is awful, this is weird, I, I, don't, I don't feel right, but others are, they're curious. And so the curiosity is what then initiates the experimentation with more information, right. more access. So now they have 
access to their phones, their computers, their parents, uh, right. uh, laptops, and so forth, and so they can access it very, very quickly. So experimentation takes place very, very early. Right. And with some, the experimentation doesn't gravitate to habitual behaviors, but for many it does. Mm -hmm. So they'll start then with the uh, habit of using the material, and now, much like with the use of drugs, alcohol, they start using it as a way to manage and cope with life. Mm -hmm. So they have stresses at work or at school and with their friends, they feel lonely. So they will turn to these materials in order to kind of self-medicate. Yes. And then that leads to addictive patterns, which mm -hmm. is now Where is it now defined as addiction? See. Where's that line where you would say, this is now in the addiction world? Uh, well, that's another part of the debate that Tom was referring to, whether or not it becomes an addiction. Yeah. There is some debate even within our our own right. profession as to whether or not we can call it addiction. But a lot of the science and research is indicating that the, those areas of the brain that are activated uh, that then uh, helps to secrete the hormones of neuro, uh, the neurotransmitters like dopamine and endorphins, adrenaline, those are all activated during s sexual arousal and stimulation. And that that then becomes a part of the body functioning that a person can rely on in order to escape pressure or stress rather than turning to alcohol or drugs. Gotcha. So whether it's called an addiction or a compulsive sexual behavior, the result is exactly the same. Right. A person becomes dependent upon it in order to manage and cope. Is it just words or is there a difference between those two? Uh, there, there is a difference if we're looking at the actual definition of addiction. Okay. If we look at drug and alcohol addiction, uh, we know that that is a disease that um, a person then is dependent upon the, uh, that particular drug and, and uh, ingestion of a, a foreign substance in order to manage and cope with is life. Is it more a legal classification as to whether it can be called an addiction? Is that where... Is there some legal textbook that we're trying to say, no, this is now under the, the formal category of addiction? Or is there some kind of difference between the two descriptives? Well, there's been a difference, but there's much more of a merging just okay. within the last so it is recent several months. Some of the diagnostic manuals are indicating now that we can call compulsive sexual behavior a mental uh, disorder. Okay. Yeah. And so it's gravitated to that point. They, they fall short of saying it's an addiction, but it's a compulsive sexual behavior that is considered to be a disorder. If not managed and controlled, then can control the person interfering with life circumstances. But a lot of those that are struggling with compulsive sexual behavior will say that they feel that they're addicted. Because yeah. they've so it's tried on the to. Verge. Oh, yeah, because they've tried to stop many times and they seem to keep returning to it regardless of the consequences. When, then, yeah, go ahead. When Dan was studying this, I had the opportunity at that time to be involved in the neurotrauma team at both primary and, and the LDS hospital at the university. And I remember some of the things that we were really looking at in neurotrauma were catecholamines, endorphins, you know, dopamine, uh, adrenaline, and and now, you know, those, these little things we keep in our pockets, which we call cell phones, the engineers of these have created 
the same response when they ding or when they buzz. They wow. understand it, the brain science yeah, and understand. the development of the apps and right. all of those accesses and that we so have to those things. They actually bring into the science and into the app these things which trigger dopamine, which trigger adrenaline, which, which trigger these responses. So again, are we addicted to our cell phones? Are we addicted to those little dings that wow. that Apple and Samsung, which and, happens to and, me twice already in our you know, discussion, you know, have, have put into you those are. structures? So the the reason I bring that up is pornography is not the only stimulation, that, or is not the only product that is creating these same processes. Wow. I mean, we have three-year-old kids now that you know uh, are looking in their purses for their mom's cell phones and because they want that response that they get from those games and those dings some people even say that that is a entry into what later can be the compulsion what do you think of those things yeah. dan well we see that a lot tom and now invariably when we meet with new clients that are coming in that are in that millennial age Mm -hmm. bracket. Mm -hmm. Some of them single, some of them married, coming in because they have problems in their relationships with their wives because they are so totally focused on their pornographic use mm -hmm. and, and the stimulation that occurs with that. And as we then look at their history, they regularly share with us that it started back when they were looking at their, their phones when they were a teenager, when they were 12, 13, looking at their phones, the social uh, media that's there then the gaming they many times report that gaming was kind of their gateway into the pornography because there's a lot of solicitous material wow. that are in the games themselves so it's not just the content it's the mode of delivery both have pathways to addictive behavior that's what i'm hearing yeah wow well especially in this very isolated divisive difficult world that we live in people are looking for things that create those chemical responses which cause them to feel good or to feel connected. And even though it's, you know, a, a metal or plastic uh, phone or pornography or whatever it is, it can become a substitution for relationships and from... And they can control the variables. Exactly. Oh, they can. And many will say, well, why would I date and risk being rejected when I can just go to a website or hook up with a, a video camcorder uh, situation with a young woman on the other side that is giving me attention. Um, I get her, uh, then she expresses desire for me. I'm able to have then a relationship with her. I can tune in on a weekly basis to see what she's doing. She can then uh, give me then what I need sexually. My sexual needs are being met. I'm having this counterfeit connection with her. I feel a desire for her. She expresses it for me. Wow. And so these artificial relationships are developed. Mm -hmm. 
that's got to have massive impact and on real relationships. And you don't have to does, bathe, yeah. and you don't have to brush your teeth, <laughs> and you don't have to be. I, I mean, I remember. No social skills. I remember I would no, say. zero I would say, skills. you know, I, I need to call at least seven gals to get a date. And, you know, I would stop at about seven, and then I'd feel rejected. <laughs> but now, you know, you, you just go right on, and, and it's there, and you constantly That's amazing. get this this constant reinforcement. And where's the relationship? The relationship is with, with some mechanical process, but also the majority of the relationship is up here in the brain. And you, know, you project the relationship onto these uh, devices or this uh, false relationship. I guess it really isn't a false relationship. It's a relationship as they define it, but it yeah. certainly isn't with one-to-one -one with another person. But it's a counterfeit for true intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. We all seek intimacy, and that is what part of my presentation at this conference will be about, is, is how we all seek, we desire connection. We are born to connect. We're wired to connect. Yeah, why do we go to conferences? We go to conferences to connect to interact with other people, with like-minded people, and to walk away feeling like, oh yes, I connected with those people, I, I agree, I was, I was fed by those relationships. Give us a few more little tidbits. What, what else are you going to talk about at, at the conference? Just a couple of things, if you don't mind. Okay. Well, as, as we understand the world of, of attachment, we're understanding so much more now, aren't we, Tom, with the research that's been done around attachment and connection and relationships. There, in my belief, there is a spiritual core for that, that we are created to connect. And we can go back to uh, Bible verses with that. We can go to ancient religions such as you know, Buddhism and uh, Hinduism and even Native American lore talks about oneness with God, oneness with the Spirit, and that it is our core desire to be bonded and to connect. So with that as an infant, we are always looking to our parents for that bonding. We know that children that don't have that connection don't thrive. Some of the studies indicating, too, that they, will, they have an earlier death rate wow. because of that lack of connection. And that we, through our then growing up years, we find ways to stay connected. And if we have uh, experiences where there's rejection, that creates a lot of emotional trauma for us. So a lot of our trauma that we deal with therapeutically have to do with relationship dysregulation. People feeling rejected or hurt through a divorce or the death of a loved one. Or feeling then rejected by friends. And so a young person that is looking for that connection and not finding it and maybe feeling lonely and disconnected from his peers or his, his parents will be at much greater risk to then turn to artificial or counterfeit ways of finding that connection mm -hmm. through then his digital use, going to those relationships online. Uh, I won't get rejected by them. I can always be accepted and feel of that bondedness. And even then, it isn't just looking at pornography, then it's logged in the brain. And I, can, I could close my eyes and fantasize about anything at this point and feel connected to whomever I please, whenever I please. And if that's connected then to sexual arousal and stimulation, then that sets up the tone for then continued 
than potential habitual and, and addictive behaviors that are established over time. So uh, the presentation will really directly address connection, attachment, and its relation to addiction. Gotcha. Uh, we, we know uh, that loneliness, for example, there was a recent uh, periodical with uh, Psychology Today that talked about lonely, the loneliness cure is what right. it's called. Yeah. And saying that we, we feel hunger and we feel loneliness and they're putting it in the same kind of category now scientifically that it's a part of the same activating areas of the brain that direct us then to want to eat. Yeah. That if we feel hunger, we want to eat. When we feel lonely, we want to connect. And so loneliness is actually being seen as a, a gift to us to direct us to then engage in behavior that is going to connect and feed that part of our, our soul that needs to have bondedness and connection with others. So it's a built-in warning a little bit. It is a warning, just like our hunger. So wow. if hunger, I feel hunger... Bo bored, tired, you know, all of those things I've found is that's a right. direct correlation when people get bored and sleepy and tired and hungry and lonely, then they are driven to try and fill that with some stimulus. That's right. Some, yeah. And often they choose pornography or something else. Uh -huh. then, and and we, we have a, an acronym, Tom, that uses those very same uh, words. It's called BLAST. BLAST. stands for Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stressed, and Tired. Oh, my heavens. And so okay. for individuals blast. So, so when, when you're blasting, you're, you could be in trouble. <laughs> that's right, okay. that's right. And then I had a, a, a client who comes from a religious background, and he said that also fear, money, and rejection. So his acronym was Blasphemer. And it just helps him to yeah. kind of remember, yeah. you know, and to get in touch with those emotions, because that's a part of the therapeutic process of healing, is being in touch with my loneliness before I turn to an artificial way One more time on to blast. deal with bored, it. Bored, lonely, angry, angry stressed, stressed, tired. Tired. Okay. It's kind of an offshoot of HALT that we see in AA. Uh -huh. AA right. has an acronym called HALT, Hungry, Angry, Lonely, Tired. Okay. But we also had to incorporate boredom bored. and stress yeah. because we saw those uh, significantly as much right. as the others. Yeah. So frequently, what you hear about is this just being spoken of as a man's problem. Do you have anything to add about uh, the women component, women who also struggle with this problem? Or, or how does it impact women in our society? Some of the latest research is indicating that one-third of pornography users are female. One-third. Wow. One-third. Now, that seems a bit high to me. That isn't what we see in our clinic in terms of the numbers of individuals coming in for help. But uh, that is some research that's been done, and, and that's quite startling. That's way up from what it was even five years ago. And it can be attributed, I think, to the early accessibility, the early exposure that these young women are having to it. I, I counsel with a lot of church leaders in different uh, church congregations, and they're indicating that they are having more and more young girls come to their church leaders expressing uh, concern that they have a hard time stopping looking at pornography, even though they know that they shouldn't, but they're having a hard time 
uh, stopping it and, uh, and and the behaviors that associate or associated with that masturbation and other forms mm -hmm. of stimulation and so uh, it's an increasing problem amongst our young women and the girls in our society and culture familiarly how does this impact families dan how does this impact children if a father or mother are involved in in this compulsive type of a behavior, what signs or symptoms or what ills do we see in families who have parents involved in this problem? Well, what we see probably clinically right at the, f at the front end of when a couple mm -hmm. or an individual comes in to see us is that the wife is feeling a tremendous amount of disconnection back mm -hmm. to that uh -huh. concept is, yeah. of connection and attachment. She's been feeling disconnected from her husband for maybe many years. Mm -hmm. And she is wondering why. She's wondering why he hasn't seemed to have been there. She'll say things like, I don't know him. Uh, he seems so distant. I'm not sure I know really who he is. Mm. Uh, and yeah, he's involved, he's providing for the family, he's a very productive uh, individual in his business, he may even have a, a high-level church calling. Mm -hmm. I have a couple of couples that were in to see me just last week where this particular scenario fits. Mm -hmm. And so he's very busy with his church work or with his business or a school. Uh, and so he, she just figures that that's been the problem for all these years. So his distancing so has distancing been his stress has been and his business, mm -hmm. but she now is thinking, is it something else? Yeah, and so she's maybe even inquired and confronted him at times. Are you doing other things? There's, is there another woman? Are you looking at pornography? And a very, uh, we say it's the lifeblood of this addiction is dishonesty and deceit. So there's many times denial of it for many right. years. And so then she feels like she's kind of going crazy. Right. And the husband is just keeping things secret from her because he's not wanting to be, have exposure to, uh, to all of this and also feeling a tremendous amount of shame because his behavior is incongruent with his belief system. So he's feeling that hurt, that pain, that shame internally, but he's not finding a way of being able to manage this. He's maybe tried to stop the pornography for many years. So he'll stop for maybe a few weeks, months, maybe even a few years then keep returning to it uh, because he's then dealing maybe with his stress, with his pressure, with the things at his work. And so he's finding a, an outlet, a way to cope and manage. And so then she'll maybe find something that he's been looking at. Maybe she'll find telltale signs of, of then his, uh, um, maybe his texts that he's been sending to women or, or his history of pornography use. And then we'll get the call from her. Many of our first calls are from the wives mm. seeking help. Then the couple comes in, and then we then find out from his history what's been going on. Then the truth begins to come out. Then we begin the disclosure process. So the impact upon the spouse is very significant. Then the children themselves. Many times uh, I'll have the report from a young man that comes in to see me that's in his 20s say that, his first exposure was watching dad watch pornography, walking in while dad is actually looking at it mm. and having that first exposure, being startled by it, wondering what is this, and then in a way kind of being given license now 
to look because, well, His dad does it. it. Yeah. Dad, he's a great dad. He's involved in church. If he does it, well, then what's the problem? Right. So it kind of opens up the door for that. So they then have that uh, kind of green light to go ahead and look at it themselves as well and then get in, hooked into that, that process as well. And also the kids may be feeling the distance and disconnection from dad. I remember in the 90s um, a study that was being done up at the University of Utah Medical Center looking at highly adrenalized families mm -hmm. and fathers that were physically abusive or used anger a lot and screamed and yelled, or mom also, and the profound impact that had on uh, the stress of the kids. And just kind of an aside that we found from this study was also a, a much higher level of adrenalization in these families where one or both of the parents were involved in pornography. Mm. And when we removed that adrenalization from the family, we saw an increase in IQ. We saw an increase in, in grades in school. Wow. We saw a significant increase in socialization. Mm -hmm. So I, I remember that's where I thought, wow, adrenalization in a family really impacts children significantly. And when I think of a pornography use and the profound adrenalization that is involved in that, I can't help but think this is probably also affecting kids in a similar way with that high level of adrenalization in the home. Yeah. Because any time yeah. you have that much adrenal activity going on where the adrenal gland is, is working over, over time, you see that impacting the relationship, the family, grades, intellect, IQ. So there are a lot of other things that probably filter out from these yeah, problems we've yeah. been speaking about this morning. And that adrenal infusion can be created in several different ways throughout that scenario that you're talking about. Right. Because a heightened amount of sexual arousal also increases the amount of adrenal flow. Correct. Uh, then if there is a, a worry of being caught, then the individual that is looking at it, their, yeah. their adrenal right. Uh, right. flow is increased because Ingrated. now they're trying to cover right. their tracks, they're right. worried they're going to be caught, and so there's this kind of constant right. concern and worry and stress right. that they're going to be somehow discovered. And then the wife worrying about, boy, I'm losing my husband, and I'm feeling maybe I need to do something different, or I know that he, uh, he gets um, angry very quickly, so I need to clean up more, and so there's more adrenalization with the kids, and yeah, so before she, you know yeah, it, everybody yeah. has a higher level. So she's afraid to confront, right? and then right. finally she finds something, and then does confront, yeah. and then she is angry, right? and a, a, the adrenal flow is there as well right. with anger. Right. She's hurt because he's been what we call gaslighting her for many years, right. Right. where he actually has been he knows that she's onto him, but he makes her sound crazy. Honey, how could you right. accuse me of this? I've been doing this and this and this for the family. Mm -hmm. I would never do that. Mm -hmm. um, you're, you're imagining things. When are you going to get over this? And so she I think feels you like better she's need crazy. some help yourself. Because, yeah, let's get you in yeah, for some help. Yeah. Let's get I've you some I've seen that counseling. numerous times where, where the, 
the woman ends up in counseling and then the therapist recognizes the symptomology and then says, I think you need to bring your husband in and then, then the truth is comes Is that out. usually where a catalyst for positive change is? Sometimes. Sometimes. If he's, if he's willing to be humble and accept and recognize and be vulnerable and be willing to get help. Where does a, a positive step forward usually begin? Usually there has to be a recognition, and often yeah. that, at least my experience, that comes from someone getting caught at a massage parlor or, mm -hmm. or you know, the, the son finding the pornography stash in the attic or, mm. or under the front seat of the car or, or, you know, in some hidden box somewhere, or someone calls and says, you know, uh, I just want to let you know your husband and I, I mean, or dating, you know, or something of that nature. Often there is some process, or sometimes through a, a mental breakdown or just a stress breakdown, where at least that's my experience. Yeah, and all, all of those are parts of, of different stories. Yeah. Why people come in and get help. And, yeah. and there are those as well that just are done. Mm -hmm. They're just fed up. So they've been ready. they've been living the ruse for so yeah. many years. They're exhausted. They don't want to have to live the lie any longer. And many of them have some very strong religious beliefs and feelings about in their own integrity and their own feelings of incongruence with what they believe and what they're doing. Wow. And that's a strong trigger for some. I have a young man who was in to see me just last week with his wife, and that's what happened with him. He's in his early 30s, sharp young man, a good career, and he's just going, I can't do this anymore. It's, it's going to kill me spiritually. He's done. So, and he is going to then be open to getting a lot of help now because he's been humbled. He's willing to open his mind and his heart to then the help that he's needing to, to get. It's, a it's going to be a long road to hoe for him. It's yeah. a lot of work, but now there's real hope for him in my mind because he's willing to submit himself to the process of healing. He's not fighting it any longer. Well, I think you've seen why I have such a great respect for Dan Gray and his great work. I hope that you'll consider joining us on March 29th and 30th at the Eternal Core Conference in Salt Lake City, and you can experience more of what we've experienced this morning. Dan, thanks so much for coming and for being a part of this podcast, and uh, we hope that this will move people to come. Any, any last words that you'd like to share with us? Well, I'm just grateful for the opportunity of being here today and also of being able to present at the conference anytime we can join together, kind of lock arms to battle this. Uh, I, I see the men that, and women that I work with and my colleagues as being humble warriors in this battle. And so this is a, this is a cause to fight for and it's worth, worth the battle. So thanks for letting me be a part of worth it. Worth the work. It is. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Thank you.